Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2009. Uh, we have a special guest tonight, uh, Tom Fry, who will be talking about the future of education. Before we get started, I'd like to give you a little bit of an introduction to the Illuminate environment that you're in, if you haven't been in here before. You'll see that uh, across the top of your screen you have some icons. If Tom decides to ask a question, we can um, give you an opportunity to do A, B, C, D, E, or yes and no responses to that. Um, the third icon from the left is the layout icon. And if you'll click that, the window layout icon, and select the second one, wide layout, you'll probably have a better experience with the chat, because those chat uh, messages can go by pretty fast. The chat is, in fact, um, the window that has it says chat at the at the top and then has uh, comments from the users in there. Just be aware that as the moderator of the session, I can see everything. Even if you send a private message to someone else, uh, you're certainly welcome to send private messages. But do be aware they do they pop up for me. You'll see that uh, at the button there's a button at the bottom that says send and then it says to and a drop down box. So you can send to this room, you can send just to the moderators, or you can send to a specific participant. If you do send a specific message, remember to come back and switch to this room when you want to send a chat to the whole room. The chat window is really a lot of fun. It's a great place to put links or comments. Um, it can fill up quickly, so it's thoughtful to, um, to not have too much uh, extraneous chatter uh, because it can be distracting. We'll leave that to your good discretion. Um, there are some other things that you can do during the session to indicate uh, feedback. At the bottom of the participants window, at the very left, you'll see a hand with a green arrow up. If you press that, like I'm doing now, it, it's uh, how you raise your hand. And then you click it again to take it off. And those go in numerical order. So when we get to the Q&A portion of the show, we'll ask you to raise your hand, and then we can give you the microphone. At any point in time, you can show your uh, pleasure by giving applause. There's a hand with a red with a raise coming out of it. That's the applause. You're certainly welcome to try that out. You can click the smiley face to indicate something uh, funny or enjoyable to you. The confused emoticon indicates that you're, you're needing some help or you're helping understanding something. And that's a good message to send to us and speaker, to me and the speaker, if there's something that uh, didn't come through clearly. We don't expect any down arrows, but uh, they, they can happen. And uh, certainly you're welcome to use that if uh, you disagree with something. Um, and you do have some volume controls, both for your mic and for the speaker. So if you're not hearing me clearly and you need, uh, you want to adjust the sound up, you can click the slider next to the little speaker button. Okay, so now uh, if you look at the whiteboard, you'll see that, uh, which is to the right side of your screen, you'll see that you have a little wand with a red um, a glow point at the end. And I'm going to ask you to use that by clicking on it and then clicking where you are from on the map. You see, I just put myself from California, although I'm actually in Texas right now. But if you go ahead and click, and I've got to give you permission to do so. Now you can do it. If you uh, click on the map and let us know where you're from, it's fun for us to see uh, where everybody's from. So far, predominantly in the US. I know there's some that's from Canada on earlier. Got someone from Australia. Terrific. And, and it's awfully fun. Oh, Sue, hi. Glad to have you here. 
It's also uh, a lot of fun if you just put in uh, the city that you're in and maybe the time and the temperature in the chat window. Get used to putting something in chat. It's also kind of fun to see what the weather's like. I'm here in Texas at the COSIN conference, and it went from a balmy 86 degrees when I arrived to tomorrow being forecast in the 40s, so a 40-degree drop. So our guest tonight is Tom Fry. Um, Tom wrote an article called The Future of Education, which actually generated some comments in uh, the Classroom 2.0 network. And I'm going to put that link up so that you can uh, uh, see the discussion in Classroom 2.0. And I'm also going to put up the link in the chat for um, the actual article, which if you haven't read, I'd recommend that um, you might enjoy downloading after the session tonight and taking a look at. So Tom, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, well, this is this really is just a fascinating technology that you're working with here. I've um, not been through a session quite like this before, so this is quite intriguing. Well, we're really delighted to have you. Um, and, it, and it's, uh, of course, how could we not invite the author of an article called The Future of Education to the Future of Education interview series? <laughs> yeah. They're just in the the last hour, I got another dozen people connecting to me on Twitter here. So this is um, quite an interesting way of, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's uh, a social networking on steroids, if you will. Yeah, and in many ways, I think really reflects the degree to which the web is providing us a platform for conversations. Um, and that we're, we're, we're taking the tools that are available and, and uh, finding ways to, to engage in interesting conversations. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really an interesting launching pad for our discussion on the future of education because when you see something like this, it becomes so obvious how, um, how we can connect live with people around the world and in uh, teaching and instructing formats that we've not conceived of in the past, um, or at least we haven't been using well in the past. There's a question in the chat about uh, Tom's Twitter. It is uh, Thomas Fry, uh, twitter.com forward slash Thomas Fry. Uh, and for those of you who are interested in what Twitter is, Peggy. Uh, is going to put in the chat window, I'm sure, the link to the, the Classroom 2.0 uh, session last week on Twitter for teachers. Well, so Tom, let me start by asking you um, really the obvious question. Your article starts by saying that within two years, a radical shift will begin to occur in the world of education. The article was written almost uh, exactly a year ago. Do you still believe that? And would you like to kind of set the stage for that argument? Uh, sure. Uh, with with all the things that have been going on online, the uh, uh, I, I see I see the world of education uh, moving into what I call the, the iTunes approach to education, where it becomes a participative venture, where people from around the world can actually create courses and. Um, and submit it to a central distribution center, and from that distribution center, then uh, people from around the world can also take those courses. But there's a lot more to it than, than just that. That's a real rough overview. And uh, the, the work I, I know that's going on in the background, I think this is absolutely true. 
I missed the last part of that. The work that's going on in the background. Yes, I. Um, with with the the things that we're working on, we're working with the company that's doing exactly what uh, I had mapped out in this uh, paper on the future of education and uh, refining it and and uh, actually creating a, a fine piece of software that will enable people to create courseware online very rapidly and quickly and uh, robustly. Okay, so it'll be fun to get there uh, to that point. Uh, certainly the, the courseware argument is the central thesis of, uh, of the article. Um, before we do so, uh, would, the article starts by talking about a lesson from the ancient world. Do you want to describe that? Uh, sure. Yeah, when we go back to the time of the ancient Greeks, we have several famous Greek mathematicians. We have people like Archimedes, Pythagoras, Euclid. Uh, we have a number of famous Greek mathematicians. But when the Romans came around, we didn't. We don't have any famous Roman mathematicians. And it's not because the Romans are somehow dumber than the Greeks. Uh, it was because they used Roman numerals. Uh, Roman numerals is a rather stupid numbering system, but in defense of the Romans, there happened to be a lot of stupid numbering systems at the time. Uh, the, the reason it was such an inferior numbering system is it wasn't a placeholder system. It didn't have the ones, the tens, the hundreds, or the thousands. And so every number that the, the Romans wrote down was essentially an equation. And that prevented them from doing any higher math. So then the the obvious question there, uh, well, when you think about it, this is such a major concept because an entire civilization was prevented from doing any higher math because of the system that they had in place. So then the obvious question becomes, what systems are we using today that are the equivalent to Roman numerals that are preventing us from doing great things? When you put yourself in that frame of mind, you start seeing lots of systems that we're using today. Um, as an example, we have a half-implemented metric system. We're buying 3.2-liter car, car engines and we're putting in quarts of oil. Um, we're using uh, a Dewey Decimal System, which is getting more and more out of date uh, on a minute-by-minute basis in our libraries. And when we start looking around, we have lots of archaic systems. And so what are they preventing us from doing? I would contend that our education system is in an archaic state right now and, and, um, and it's preventing us from doing a lot of uh, interesting things. So certainly you feel like uh, the education system is sort of the key or the linchpin to a, a lot of other improvements? Yeah. Uh, I absolutely do. Absolutely do. The, uh, right, right now, we have, um, th this became real clear to me when I was using Google Trends. Uh, if you've never used Google Trends, it's a real fascinating tool because it, it puts up graphs and statistics on uh, how, how often people search on things. But we have this, this exponential growth of information. When you look at things like Wikipedia and YouTube and uh, Twitter and all the different social networking sites, we start seeing this exponential growth of information. But when you type in courses online, it's a very static line on Google. 
on, on Google Trends. And so we're, we're not even um, we're not even growing a little bit with courses online. So this creates what I call the difference between courses and the information that we have is what I call um, the courseware vacuum. And this idea of a courseware vacuum, we should the the information growth line should be uh, indicative of the, the amount of uh, education options that we have, the learning options that we have, and, and it's not, not at the moment. So therein, therein lies the opportunity. There's a lot of people taking notice of this too. So it's interesting, um, the, what you're calling the courseware vacuum is number three of your eight driving forces, but it really does seem yeah. to be kind of the summary force. Um, yeah, it really, really is. Um, and so the, this, this courseware vacuum is really, I think, uh, driving everything uh, because there's, there's so many topics that, that if you wanted to take a class in them today, you just simply couldn't because they don't exist. Well, well the most idea really resonated. Go ahead, Don. Yeah, most people today, if they wanted to create a, a, a new course, and introduce it into a school system, they wouldn't have a clue how to go about doing that. Yeah, I found that it really resonated with me. And I, and again, like, like good ideas do for me, as soon as you introduced it in this article, I began to see it manifest in many ways. And essentially what I heard you saying was, we have all kinds of information and all kinds of people who would like to be helping others learn that information, but we don't have an easy standardized way to do that. Right. Um, and, and the way I talk about this rapid course for builder, it's the, it's the idea of a templated process that's simple to use. But it has a, a rule structure based around it that uh, uh, makes it so it's standardized and people understand how to use it. If it's too open and too free, um, then it falls apart because of too many options. So I want to get to some specific questions about the uh, courseware issue. But I, I'm very interested also kind of in drilling down on the eight forces. Are you comfortable kind of going through those one at a time? Sure, sure. Um, so the, the, first, the first force that I talk about is the, uh, the transition from teaching to learning. We have a very teacher-centric uh, school system right now. And so as information expands exponentially, um, we simply won't have enough experts that we can put in front of the room uh, to cover all these different topics. So as an example, if, if we have, uh, there's a lot of uh, real interesting topics that are just being created. We only have one or two experts in the world on those particular topics. Now for that information to ever make it into a classroom, that expert has to teach a, uh, a trainer, and the trainer has to train the teacher, and the teacher then has to put it into curriculum, and then somehow it makes it into a classroom. Um, at today's pace, that's usually a five-year process. Um, yeah, there's probably some shortcuts, but for, for the most point, for the most part, that's a very difficult process, and the teacher then becomes the choke point. And I'm not sure that we want to have the, the teacher as a choke point. Um, the, the second one is the, the exponential growth of information, which I just talked about, and we see that exploding all around us. And then the 
the third one I go into is the courseware vacuum. That's the differential between uh, the information that's being created and the options we have for taking courses. Then the, the fourth trend is, is learning drivers. Now the whole time I was, I was working on this paper on the future of education, I spent 18 months working on it. I kept asking this one central question. What's the most important thing I should be learning today? And as I was doing that, I was asking that question. I kept putting myself in the shoes of various students, a future airline pilot, a future genetic engineer, a future lawyer, a future plumber, a future literary agent, future industrial designer. And as I was putting myself in the shoes of those students as they were going through school, what's the most important thing I should be learning today? And invariably, what I saw happening is the, the teachers are saying, this is what you need to know. The students are saying, this is what I want to learn. And there's a, a terrific conflict that was happening there. And so, and Tom, so can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. So it, uh, you've got learning drivers as number four. I think in the article we're looking at it's number six. So if anybody's oh, following okay. along, uh, just don't don't worry. I think Tom's uh, maybe reprioritized. But I want to go back quickly to to one, two, and three because uh, there were a couple of things that I noted that that might be valuable to talk about. One, the transition from teaching to learning. It felt to me in the last couple of days at this consortium for school networking conference that I'm at that this idea of uh, the system switching to being learner centric has sort of all of a sudden become the phrase of the day. It was probably mentioned in, in most of the sessions I was in. Uh, don't we have a good history of learner-centric um, education before kind of the industrial schools anyway? Uh, we did, yeah. I mean, people were forced to learn on their own. I mean, we, um, as, as the, the problems of life hit you in the face, you ended up having to learn them. Um, but as we were creating people, uh, workers for the industrial society, um, we, we ended up kind of losing that. Uh, I'm not sure I have any, any good examples of how to explain that, but, but that somehow got lost along the way and, and it became this very top-down uh, education system where it's very much uh, teacher-centric. Well, it's been kind of intriguing to think about how we're seeing this modeled in the business world. Uh, very much right now, uh, the, the, there appears to be a, a business model evolving in which a product is produced and then the consumers of that product give feedback and highly inform the development of future versions of that product. You know, Flickr being a great example, I'm thinking of largely Web 2.0 tools but where the, the product needs to follow the desire of the users. And do you think that it's likely we'll see education uh, move in the same direction where the learner becomes more powerful than they have been previously? I, I absolutely think that will be the case, yes. But um, students will have far more, far more input than they have had in the past. and. Um, the, the way I see this being architected is that this will constantly be assessing the uh, the interests of the student, and there's recommendation engines that will 
present courses that will fit with with what the interests are for that particular day. As as a person's interest change and as a mood changes now as they take it one, two, three different courses in certain areas, they uh, it expands their horizons and then they, they understand where they need to go next. And so it starts kind of the the future starts revealing itself to that student. Very interesting. Okay, so year number three it's, it's, is it's the a, course it's a much more uh, I, I should say it's a much more organic process in that that um, it, it, it ends under um, the options change on a on a daily, probably an hourly basis, and so that it uh, it's not something that gets mapped out months in advance and then misses the curriculum you take. Uh, it can change very quickly. So I just want to make a note to those who are in the chat. Uh, it's beginning to move a little bit faster than I can uh, process at the same time while asking while I'm asking questions. So please keep track of the questions that you want to ask, so that um, that when we go to the Q and A towards the end, that you are able to do that. Tom, so when I read the coursework vacuum section, I wondered about SCORM. Isn't that what SCORM is supposed to do? Um, I will. Um, I will claim ignorance um, on that one. Um, I, I should qualify myself here as I'm an outsider, and as, a, as an outsider in the education world, I have um, kind of knowledge gaps here and there. That's one I'm not aware of. Well, and I, I'm not sure that I can claim any great knowledge beyond knowing that it's intended to be. Um, kind of a, a universal standard for courseware so that if I've created a course and I can export it into SCORM, it can then be imported by other learning management or courseware systems. Um, those of you in the chat who know more, I sure appreciate your, your chiming in there. Um, but still, I would, I would say your argument is essentially still the same, which is until there's universal adoption or awareness, then we really don't have um, you know, the kind of uh, open standardization that you're asking for. Right. I'm just reading up here on what SCORM is, uh, and so I'm just catching up here on the fly. <laughs> well, don't um, feel that you need to become an expert in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> that, that's what's so fascinating about this format that you're using here. Um, I, the um, yeah, I think yeah, the, the whole uh, standardization um, happens on certain levels here, but then uh, the trick in designing this rapid courseware builder and designing um, course modules in the future will be how flexible do you make them, how open do you make them, and uh, how how creative do you allow people to get. I mean, uh, uh, one of one of the things I, I talk about is is going into making a modality diverse, uh, meaning that uh, it could be courses that you take on a computer, but it also means that you can go out and um, plant plants in a garden, or or swim with the dolphins, or uh, work on some biology project hands-on. Somehow you you interpret that information and you record it all online. So then you have an online system for recording all that information. Yeah, I mean, as so I read the article and talked about it with some friends, 
I thought of the degree to which, uh, in the teaching process, it would be nice to be able to record something in some way so that if somebody else asked for the same material, I would have an outline to do it. And the current systems that I thought of using, like Moodle, required that I actually have an account somewhere and that I was familiar with the tool. So I, I immediately thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have an online program that sort of guided me through that so that as I found something I was interested in teaching, I had a very simple way of recording that. Is, are, are we getting, am I getting close at all to what you're thinking? Right, right. Now, the, there, there are several attempts. People have recognized this, what I call the course for vacuum, in Moodle and Curriki and Wikiversity uh, connections. Those are all different attempts to uh, to fill this gap. Uh, I, I think we will we will know which one catches fire by the fact that it just goes it skyrockets goes red hot, um, getting probably a million courses in the first year uh, built on it. Um, and so we haven't seen that yet, uh, but I think that's that's coming very soon. So you're looking for the kind of adoption that we're seeing in MySpace or Facebook, but within the courseware environment. Exactly, exactly. Um, if, if right now MIT has all their courses online. You can go and take all their courses for free. It tends to be uh, a pretty boring um, I, I applaud them for doing this. I mean, Stanford's doing a lot of the same thing. Um, but it needs to somehow be, be wrapped up into a Web 2.0 environment and uh, become much more exciting than it currently is. Um, and so, again, this is, this is attempts to fill that courseware vacuum that I see out there. I don't think anybody's quite hit it yet. I'd be very interested to know if anybody in the chat is familiar with some of these services. I know there are a few that I've seen uh, listed on Classroom 2.0 um, of sort of online uh, teaching and learning environment that do uh, allow you to capture that material. Uh, Tom, can we go quickly to what was number four in my list, which was the expanding gulf between literates and superliterates? Can you tell us what you mean by that? Right, right. The um um, as we're we're able to feed information to people on through all kinds of different channels, and one of the things I talked about is just the expanding vocabulary. And as we're expanding the number of words in 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 our in the English language right now, our ability to teach people what all these words mean and have them used in conversation becomes uh, um, we're we're not able to do that in any functional way in our school system right now. Um, so people are learning these through other means, the other forms of education that's driving that. Um, well, one of the things, go ahead, Tom. Uh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one of the things that I read into John Palfrey's book, Born Digital, and he's from the Berkman Center, and I interviewed him. Uh, with PBS a couple of weeks ago, but was a concern that there, there's beginning to be a technological elite. And I wasn't quite sure how to square that with the gulf between literates and superliterates and the concept of technological elite, which I think essentially means that, that there's a class of youth 
people across cultures are having access to technology in a way that is putting them in, in a very elite situation. How would those two relate? Um, as we, we break down society between the literates and the illiterates, then we break down the literates between the computer literates and the computer illiterates, and then we, we break it down between the those that are computer literate, those that are maybe literate with Twitter or Facebook, and, and so we have all these different uh, class systems that we're create, creating with technological literacy. Um, uh, it, it seems that we're we're expanding this literacy universe in some interesting ways. Well, I, it certainly was food for thought for me. Okay, so number five for you was uh, touch points for interfacing with society are changing. I can definitely say my touch right. point is a keyboard. Right, right. And, and I, I think within 10 years, I don't think we'll be using um, I, th I think that uh, I've been hoping for keyboards to go away sooner, but uh, um, I think we'll be talking back and forth. We'll have uh, other types of interface devices, but uh, keyboards are very archaic. I would think that that's the equivalent to Roman numerals in our society. Well, so the point I think you're home. making is. I think the point you're making is that uh, the, the touch points for education are changing. Exactly. Um, rather than going to a classroom, we can learn things uh, very quickly through other means. Wakes up when the young, young person wakes up in the morning, they start learning the instant that they're up. And, and um, their, their entire day, they're learning things uh, all the way to the time that they go to bed at night. Um, and a lot of people uh, understand that people learn even while they're sleeping. And so the notion that we take a chunk out of our day and we call this education um, and claim that, that this learning that happens in these classrooms is somehow superior to what happens while they're using their Xbox or while they're uh, interfacing with their touchscreen display or through their iPhone or uh, some other uh, interface device that they're using, I, I think is, is a little preposterous. And so as these tools change, uh, our, our ability to learn changes as well. And some of these can speed up the learning process significantly. Well, I was intrigued. I'm intrigued by the fact that I'm definitely an audible learner. And uh, those, of, those of us who were at Q know that uh, you know, after the show's done, we're often going home. And for me, the drive back from Palm Springs was about an eight-hour drive. And I actually, for the first time, used my cell phone for the whole drive and, and listened to YouTube lectures. Um, and for me, that's incredibly liberating to have almost unlimited content available for me to listen to. Yeah. Um, one question I like to ask is, uh, um, what, what year will we have the first person who gets a PhD without being literate? Um, I mean, this notion that we have to be able to read and write in order to be a smart person that kind of permeates all of our society. And so how long will it be before we have somebody who actually gets the first PhD without being literate? Um, 
I think it's an interesting question because uh, you know, we've, we've had smart people throughout history that have, haven't been literate. You know, the first time I listened to an audio book, I thought I was cheating. But wow, this is too too easy. The uh, it kind of dawned on me that the process of reading is the process of taking these characters on a page and turning them into mental concepts and images. That process of listening to an audiobook is a little different process. You're taking sounds and turning them into mental concepts and images, but however you get the information in your head really shouldn't matter. Uh, so are we going to create ways that we can get information into our head um, and become uh, PhD smart uh, and so we can get a degree without being literate? I mean, is that a reasonable question? It usually stirs up a lot of people in the education community when I ask that question. Well, I'm going to respond just because uh, Don Tapscott spoke to the conference I met this morning, and he actually did a little story on a young man he met in Florida who said that he didn't read books. And he was the president of his Florida State University uh, senior class, and he was actually getting ready to go on a Rhodes Scholarship. And Don said, you know, how do we feel about the fact that this is someone who just doesn't read books? He, he's not a book reader. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great question. Um, we, we, I mean, we do have blind people that, that can't read traditionally, but have gotten PhDs in the past. Um, Socrates is probably one of the best known people in history, uh, universally regarded smart person that we wouldn't know anything about him if Plato hadn't written it all down. Um, so there's, there's a number of other people like that. I think, uh, literacy and intelligence are two separate items, and as we change uh, the devices that we have to work with, I think we will we'll see lots of new options. Okay, so now we're back to learning drivers, and um, can you explain to me what you mean by this as a as a force? What is the, what's the learning driver force? Yeah, that goes back to the the question of. Uh, What's, what's the most important thing that should be learning today? And, and that, that notion that uh, I'm, I'm much more motivated to learn something that's interesting to me that's, that I want to learn rather than something that somebody else wants me to learn. I think that's, that's such a, um, an important change in the way we look at education because if, if I'm presented with with four different courses, and this is one that I happen to like that I'm real fascinated by. I'm going to dive into it and learn it much quicker. I think the speed of learning happens faster. The, the kind of the level of engagement increases. Um, well, different kinds of motivations come into play there. Does that make sense? I I wasn't sure if you had finished or were, uh, were cut off there. Yeah, I, I, you know, I find it very interesting um, as I looked at that uh, hierarchy of needs. You know, I probably realized, at least for myself, I feel a lot more liberty to pursue the things that I'm interested in, and maybe that's because I'm in a community that's highly learning interested. Yeah, when when we are presented with an option where we can 
use the best learning technology that works best for us individually, and we're working on topics that, that we're interested in individually at a time that we're most interested in, it, then those, those three factors, when they come into play, I mean, that, that changes everything. Uh, the speed with which we learn, uh, again, the level of engagement, the motivation that we have, all of that changes once, once we're, uh, we're kind of synced up with, with what we have in front of us. So I wonder if that, uh, for years I've said that I was so glad to become an adult because I was able to actually capitalize on my strengths and, and not have to sh always be showcasing my weaknesses. I wonder if what I wasn't actually experiencing there was actually the opportunity to kind of manage my own learning. Well, I, I know as a kid I, I tended to resent um, people telling me what I had to do all the time. I resented that I had to read this book, resented that I had to do this project. Um, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I'd probably do the same type of things, only if I was motivated by myself, that, that changed the equation dramatically. So I was, I was kind of rebelling against the system all the time because of that. So your, your last two drivers were the age of hyper-individuality and the transition from consumers to producers. What I'm hoping you can do is kind of touch on those and then sort of set the stage for you know, sort of your summary thoughts so that we can uh, at some point fairly soon uh, move into the Q&A. Okay. Yeah, the age of hyper-individuality has to do with um, the, the fact that if we have a problem today, we're, we're not concerned about what the neighbors are doing, we're concerned about buying products to solve our individual problems. Um, so we're not trying to keep up with the Joneses so much anymore as we are trying to find that product that perfectly matches our need for the moment. And with 100 million different products on the marketplace right now, um, that's a, uh, it's usually a safe bet that one of those options are out there. And then as we transition from consumers to producers, this notion that people are no longer satisfied with information flowing one way. They, they want to somehow participate in it. They want to be engaged with this information. They want to take ownership of it. Uh, so they want to help create it. So this idea that um, it's a top-down information flows this way into the, into the student, I, th I think that's, those are days that are uh, going to be numbered here and are leaving quickly. So uh, and when I give talks on the future of libraries, I talk to libraries about uh, this notion of the tools of production. What are the tools of production that could be added to a library rather than just handing out books to people? If people could go in and actually move into a podcast studio or a blogger, blogger station or um, a video studio or something like that where you can actually create content as opposed to uh, just consume content. Good. So do you want to uh, kind of uh, do a little bit of a pitch on the standard courseware concept and are you at liberty to talk okay. about the project you're working on? Yeah, it's, I'll just, um, what we're, uh, I'll mention that it, 
we're putting together an agreement with a company called uh, Satori Edu, S-A-T-O-R-I Edu dot com, and they just have a little information up on their website right now, but it's it's all based on what they call confidence-based learning, so they're not just judging the correctness of people's answers, they're judging the confidence with which they uh, decide what the answer is. Through their research, they've, they've found that um, there's this 55-15 rule in that people have roughly 55% of the information that's in somebody's head is information that is confident and correct, and then we have is 15% that is confident but incorrect, and the rest is in the gray area in between. But the, when people are are confident, they think they're absolutely right on a topic, but they're they are actually wrong on it. That's that's pretty dangerous territory. And so the uh, the technology they've developed actually uh, improves dramatically the uh, the accuracy the the level of correctness that people have, as well as the confidence with which they have. So there's, there are certain industries where people can't afford to be wrong. If you're a doctor or a nurse in a hospital, you really have to have a high degree of certainty about what you're doing. You need to be right about it. If you're an airline pilot, again, you need to have a high degree of certainty and confidence. Uh, with this technology, they've done studies with different companies and shown uh, exceptionally high rates of, after they go through training, uh, the companies have high rates of, of employee um, retention and very uh, extremely low rates of defects. And so there's dramatic shifts that happen as a result of this type of training. So anyway, the courseware is, is all framed around this templated process so that people can can generate courses quickly and and through a very um, uh, systematic process. And once they're created, then they'll go through uh, something of a beta test operation. So they'll test out to see how well it works and, and go through the correction process. So each one will, will be evaluated and improved. And then it's released to the public. Then anybody in the world then can take these classes. So that, in, in a nutshell, each one will be framed around a one-hour uh, one-hour module. And so uh, subjects that are much longer than an hour, they will require um, a number of modules. And so it will have. Uh, there, we'll build in quite a few different unique features into this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we'll try to make it uh, modality agnostic, in that uh, it's not just computer-based learning. It's um, you can you can use videos, you can use animation, you can use uh, graphics, you can uh, be out in the shop working with a saw, and you can be learning, and somehow that gets translated into uh, these learning units. And it will have a, a profiler that's constantly assessing what you're interested in and, and topics that, uh, how your interests change over time. It will keep track of 
uh, where do you get in the classes that you've taken in the past. And then there's this whole topic of, of right and wrong, uh, the, the correctness of the information. That's, we wrestled with that on a number of different levels and how do we, how do we make sure that the information that's put out there is correct. And we looked at, you know, we're posing some sort of an oversight committee, which we instantly figured out that would get reduced into a political turmoil. Um, and so then we decided the best way to approach it would be to put some sort of a tagging system on there so it can be approved or disapproved uh, by different organizations. And so the uh, approval process, I mean, we might have some controversial classes like uh, the Catholic Church on one side uh, disapproving it, the ACLU on the other side approving it. Um, that I think will be pretty rare. More than likely, most of the classes will will fall into the category of whether or not somebody can get the IEEE stamp of approval, the American Chemical Society stamp of approval, that sort of thing. And so those, those stamps of approval will become um, uh, a very important piece of the whole process. And so the, the tagging systems will also allow um, different people to put to put tags on with comments and and uh, you know, prerequisite and post-requisite tags that we put on the courses, that sort of thing. Um, and then things like um, cert certification um, input, so that uh, if, if, as an example, uh, I um all the electrical engineering people decide that we need. Uh, 100 hours of classes for uh, a certain certification, then we'll have different people create those classes and then once you take those 100 hours, then they will decide which classes fit into that certification process. And there will be a way of participating in the well so that uh, what... Now, I had originally pitched the idea that all of the courses would be uh, general courses would be sold at 99 cents, kind of like on iTunes. I think it will be a little higher than that, but uh, again, I think it would be much more affordable than, than some of the, the high-priced education today. And, and so the people that are creating the classes will be able to participate in the money that's generated. This creates an entirely new industry. And then the last thing is to have a Last thing is to have a global distribution system that allows people to uh, send it to one central place and then it's all distributed out from there. Something that's, uh, we think of in terms of cloud computing right now, but it has to be uh, very safe and secure and hacker proof and that sort of thing. So I do want to give a chance for, for people who are commenting to, to ask some questions. Um, you say at the end of the article that um, we're on the verge of radical shifts and that uh, there are going to be people for whom this will not be a happy development. I want to tell a very quick story. I was in Pennsylvania a couple of times this year and they have a new cyber charter program. And it's certainly drawing enough students away to actually have an impact on the local districts. Is this the sort of the first wave that you think we'll be seeing of, uh, of pretty dramatic change? Uh, I think it is. Um, now, the way that I see that this transitioning is that initially schools will, will 
embrace this. This helps create the curriculums, and then uh, the traditional teachers then will start acting more as coaches, um, and they'll assist the students as opposed to being in front of the room teaching the classes. I think that becomes the first fundamental change and, and shift in the way. Um, homeschoolers will naturally uh, jump on a system like this right away. Uh, it gives them lots more tools and options than they presently have. Uh, foreign students that don't have access to uh, education like we do uh, will jump on it right away if they have a way of connecting online. And then uh, um, I, I think the, the large associations, the business world, I think will pick on this right away as well. Okay, so let's uh, let's open things up to questions. If you have a question that you'd like, you can put it in the chat. Uh, you can also raise your hand. I know that a lot of questions have flown by that I've not been able to capture, so please feel free to post again. Looks like Randy Rivers is our first uh, questioner. So Randy, I'm going to click and give you the mic. You now need to click on your audio mic button to turn it on. There you go. Can you hear go me? Go ahead, Randy. Yep. Yes, I can hear you. Randy, we had you, but it looks like you've turned your mic off. We could hear you when you started to speak, so uh, go ahead and click that mic button back on if you can. For some reason, Randy, we're not hearing you again. Go ahead and run that tools audio audio setup wizard, uh, or or try again. We can also uh, come right back to you if we want to. There, question. got it. The question has to do with uh, the gaming industry, and uh, they may have already cracked the nut on engagement and uh, uh, maybe some sort of a common engine. What do you think? Um, I think the gaming industry is making tremendous inroads. Um, the gaming industry's primary motivation is entertainment, though. Um, they haven't been looking at this through the lens of, of an educational process, at least not most of them. There, there may be a few out there, but uh, as far as engaging students, I think that, that they have um, clearly uh, raised the standard. Uh, in fact, they're they're making uh, through through the contrast between somebody playing video games and then going and sitting into a classroom. They've made that contrast so dramatic that I think that's one of the forces that's that's forcing things to change. One of the things I heard uh, in the last couple of weeks was that ga the gaming industry is really good at context, providing context for learning. Does, does that play into this where, where sometimes we just haven't done a good job of creating a context around the learning? Um, I think it can. Um, again, it's, it's not in all cases. Um, and, and certainly not all games are teaching that much useful information. They're, they're, I mean, they are teaching kids to be very competitive, uh, a lot of the games. Some of them are, are very thought-provoking games, though, the Sims games and Spore and things like that, I, I, I think are, are raising levels of awareness that otherwise would have never been raised. Um, and and they're, they're giving people an understanding of, of different tools that are out there um, different ways of looking at the world. So, yeah, it, it's. I think they're uh, they're they're tapping around the edge of the things that need to be done. 
Uh, I don't think anybody's quite solved uh, the, the keys to the city just yet. So Randy, good question and thanks for that. We're going to go to Terry Smith now. Terry, I've given you mic capability. You still need to click the audio mic button in the, in the audio box to turn your mic on. Uh, hello, Thomas. Uh, I'd like to follow up on the gaming uh, uh, line that we're here. The idea of context that was just brought up, I'd like to add to that the idea of identity and trying on identities. Uh, so much of the research I'm reading is that, that the games do provide uh, students with a chance to become something else and thereby have a chance to try on a new identity. And we even start to be looking at theories of like leg and winger, uh, legitimate peripheral participation, and seeing those capabilities existing in that environment. Now, whether the whether the real learning situations have been applied there yet, I mean that I don't I'm not sure has happened. But but what do you think about that aspect of it from from things you know? Well, certainly there's um, there's a piece of proficiency that comes with doing things over and over again. Um, I just finished Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, and that notion of of having to do um, uh, become a, to become an expert, to, you end up having to put in 10,000 hours worth of of time uh, and excel at that one particular topic. I think the gaming world creates entertaining ways to um, to actually become real proficient at certain skills, and and how that translates into um, um, the rest of their life. I'm not sure just yet, but I I think they will figure it out as as they get older. Um, you, you know, the, one of the things it does is it changes people's perspectives. On the world, and um, we're right now. The education system is very two-dimensional oriented. We're, we're we're working with two-dimensional whiteboards and blackboards, and we are um, we we don't train kids how to think three-dimensionally. So, as an example, if we were to create some three-dimensional display for the internet, and we got rid of the monitors. That we have on our desktop, that, and we displayed the internet three-dimensionally above our desks. What would that look like? I mean, we have we have great difficulty imagining what that would be. Um, my thinking is that somebody that uh, is born and raised with that technology will take an entire generation before we finally start understanding how to use three-dimensional technology like that. Um, so again, I think that uh, the gaming world I think comes into play on so many different levels. Thanks for that, Terry. Uh, Sean, I'm going to give the, my capability to you, and um, you need to click that, that button in your audio box. Okay, hopefully you can hear me well. Yep. Um, Thomas, I was just wondering, with the advances in technology, I was wondering if you see it, how you see this affecting the barriers between the public and the private life, and if they're being melded, or is that really a good thing, or or could it be dangerous? Just love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Um, yes, I think I think it can uh, probably be dangerous. I mean, since we're uh, we're blurring all those borders between uh, our private life and our private thoughts, and and um, we're moving towards this era 
of what a lot of people are calling radical transparency. Um, uh, how, how, how will life change as a result of that? Um, I, I don't think we have a real good handle on that. I mean, the, the privacy advocates are out there arguing fiercely that we, we can't allow that to happen. The, the people in the radical transparency uh, making those arguments are saying that um, um, I'm, I'm not going to throw rocks at somebody that lives in a glass house if I also live in a glass house so that we're equally safe because we're all equally transparent. Um, that, that presumes that, that uh, we will achieve some sort of level of equal transparency. I'm not sure that's a good presumption. So that you're bringing up some, some real interesting questions and um, I'm not sure I have a, a good handle on all the downsides yet. Uh, I do know that um, that it, it, we will have uh, far increased incidence of burnout as a result of this. We'll have um, we, we have a lot of kids that don't know enough to shut things off. Um, I have I have a granddaughter as an example who is averaging. Each month, she's averaging 28,000 text messages every month. Um, I think that's a staggering number. Uh, she obviously doesn't know how to turn it off. So uh, I, I think we'll run into lots of new and unusual issues that we don't have good answers for. Thanks, John, for that question. Zeus, I'm turning the mic to you. Yeah, Thomas, I, um, can you hear me fine? Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, I just had a question. Uh, this can, it's a somewhat of a practical and theoretical question. I've been bemoaning this for probably about a decade uh, uh, with regard to the technologies, developing integrational technologies that will get both content and functionality with regard to technology together so that we're not just checking about a thousand different accounts and trying to sift through comments from people that are going a thousand different directions. Um, what, what is being done on that uh, uh, that you're aware of, and uh, do you see promise in that area in terms of allowing uh, macros and other things to be built so that we don't have to spend so much time organizing and learning these different technologies? Um, um, yeah, you're, you're asking a question that's near and dear to my heart because I, um, I run into that problem on a daily basis. Uh, uh, how do I filter through all of this stuff? Um, it would be, be great if we had some way of letting the information that is most important to us somehow rise to the top and make it swing into our heads. The, the trend is towards making uh, the interface between our brain and all the information in the world as seamless and as invisible as possible. So right now, if, you, um, if somebody asks you a question, typically you can go on to your computer and do some searches on it and within 5, 10, 15 minutes you can find uh, whatever information you're looking for. Um, I would think it would be a real interesting uh, competition of sorts. I, I think a lot in terms of like XPRIZE competitions. But if somebody uh, offered a, a $10 million prize for the first person, who in this competition uh, you have this university of knowledge, universal uh, body of knowledge, we'll call it the Encyclopedia Britannica, and um, 
we have some sort of an interface device where our brain is somehow skull cap or something, we're, we're linked to that. But the, the test is so that 30 people on the street uh, can be brought in using this device and you can ask them any question within their universe of knowledge and they can answer it within 15 seconds. Um, then I think we've, we've somehow moved to a whole other level. I think that type of interface device is coming. Um, we're, we're not there yet, but uh, certainly it would supplant the traditional keyboard and monitor that we're using today. Does that answer your question? Hello? So uh, I think it, it must have, if we haven't heard from Zeus, uh, Okay. Just trying to save some time and put up the link to our final survey, and uh, the, the survey link is bad, so give me a second, I'm going to do it. While I'm doing that, we'll let Kim ask the final question. Uh, Kim, I'm going to give you uh, access to the mic. My question really has... Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, um, my question really has to do with motivation of the students. This seems like it would be such a marvelous opportunity for the highly motivated student or the adult. And I see it really as widening the gap right now between the haves and haves nots with those students who just don't seem to care so much. And I wondered if you had thought much about that question yet. Yeah, that's a, that's a real common question. And I, I tend to go towards, I think, I think students are, all have their own motivations, but they're motivated in different ways. And so the traditional motivated versus unmotivated student, I think, is radically different than what it would be in a, in a system where you can actually pick the courses that you're interested in and take classes that are of interest to you um, and also learn them in a learning style that clicks with you. Uh, if you're an audio learner, if you're a, a very visual learner, if you have the option of of taking classes that really click with your learning style, uh, that changes the motivations radically. I'm not sure that that answers all of the questions on motivations and certainly uh, certainly students in the future as they have in the past will, will move, um, move forward at different paces. But I think that uh, I, I don't think we know enough yet to, to uh, dismiss this this type of system out of hand because some people might not be motivated. I don't think we, we understand that equation just well enough just yet. Thanks. I, I would agree with that. I, I just I do worry, but I think it would be such an opportunity for so many students. I wouldn't dismiss it. Yeah, well, thanks for the question. Okay, so I'm back, and I'm sorry if you heard me typing, but I do have a good link for the survey. Let's go ahead and give uh, Tom a little round of applause. and do that by clicking on the hand clapping. Tom, thanks so much for coming on. That was uh, really great. There's been a lot of great dialogue and discussion about um, about what your your thoughts and and that in this particular article, and and let's hope that discussion keeps going. Uh, did you yeah, have any final thoughts you wanted to give? Yeah, I've seen the comments been flying by here. I uh, apologize. I haven't been able to focus on them. Otherwise, I would mess up on all kinds of other things. But this is absolutely a fascinating process you have here. And uh, I thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. It's been delightful. Our thanks to Illuminate 
for providing the environment here. And our thanks to KnowledgeWorks, who have uh, funded this interview series. Uh, appreciation to all of you for coming out tonight and for participating. Um, Tom, if you want to put in your uh, contact information again in the chat, people can contact you directly if there were questions that uh, didn't get answered. Um, and maybe your Twitter account as well. So thanks, Tom. Thanks, everyone, for coming. And uh, the recordings of the session will be posted by tomorrow. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody.